For those of you that may be guests with us today, it becomes obvious fairly quickly that we love connecting with one another. In fact, I believe that walking with the Lord without connections of a body of Christ is profoundly unfulfilling. And so, uh, the aspect of, of finding time in our gathering just to connect with one another, to meet new friends, is really important to us here at Grace Assembly. For those of you that may be guests, we have just finished a couple of weeks ago a series called A Glorious Future by which we were preparing. It was a capital campaign for the next church that we were about to build. Uh, we've purchased 13 acres of land just a little over a mile away from here. And uh, uh, this capital campaign was to help us raise funds for the building of this new church, which will uh, enable us to have the room that we need to engage our community in, in some more profound ways. And uh, I have, I had been waiting because we've had some families that said we weren't able to act on our either the offering or the pledge part of it and so we have gathered some numbers and we would like to celebrate with you today now during this time I told you that the first fruits offering that we were going to be taking on the 11th would would likely be the largest offering that this church has ever taken and I can tell you today it in fact was the largest cash offering with a total of $125,000 taken in that one offering Amen. Amen. So let me tell you the backstory. At a board meeting this week, we were looking at the numbers, and it really came out to $124,992. And uh, somebody that was in that room said, here, let me just go ahead and give $8 toward my pledge. I think it was Pastor Mark. <coughs> go ahead and give him credit for that, because he was going to take it anyway. So I just saved him an announcement. And so we got to bring it all the way up to 100. And as of this morning, I understand it was already like 125,300 and something. So we just passed by that number on the way through. But that was the first fruits offering of what came to our three-year pledge total of $1,180,000 that have been pledged for our new building. Give the Lord a hand clap, shall we? What a great Christmas this is going to be. If you have your Bibles, I'm going to ask that you would turn to John chapter 1. I want to spend a few minutes with you this morning, and if you have bulletins, then there's an outline of the message and a place for you to jot down some notes if you would like. The title of the message is, I Wonder As I Wander, and I'll, I'll, I'll tie these thoughts together. But how many of you know that song, I Wonder As I Wander? Any of you heard the Christmas carol? About six of you. Uh, the rest of you are way too young. Last Sunday, Jason Forte, our chaplain, was uh, in the army, was here, and he ministered a great word, a great word. For those of you that were not here and didn't hear it, I'm going to encourage you to go to the website and click on the media icon and listen to that message because it was fantastic. But during that message, he made note of a passage of Scripture uh, found, in first, or found in John chapter 1, and, and I'm going to spend some time with it this morning. I'm actually going to read verses 14 through 18, but you just need to know that three of those verses we're not even going to get to today. We're, we're going to be spending all of our time in verse 14 today, so, um, but I just wanted to read it because it sounds good to read this together. So here it was, is what it sounds like, 1 John chapter 1, verses 14 through 18, and the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testifies concerning him. He cries out saying, this is he of whom I said. He who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. 
From the fullness of his grace, we have received one blessing after another. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but God, the one and only who is at the Father's side, has made him known. Heavenly Father, as we approach the word this morning and and kind of kick off this Christmas theme together, the one prayer that I have today is, would you make us childlike again? Can we look at this verse, Lord, though we have been through many Christmases and we know the story, would you give us the awe and the wonder of looking at this through the eyes of a child or with brand new faith so that we can capture the majesty of what you have done and the benefit that we receive from it? And so, Father, I ask that this be done with the help of the anointing of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I wonder as I wander, I thought about that song because there's so much of the Christmas story that just makes us wonder how did it really happen? Why did it happen? Why would God choose to do things the way he he does? And and in this song, I wonder as I wander, it is a, 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 the title of this song came from uh, a discovery made by Jacob Niles who spent many years wandering in the Appalachian Mountains in search of original folk songs. And it was a cold December day in North Carolina. He was watching from a vantage point over the town that he was seeing. And, and as the people were going about their daily duties, he's, he hears a singular voice of a little girl that begins to rise up out of the center of the town. And he looks and he finds her and she's sitting alone on a bench And she was singing a song that Niles had never heard before. And when she finished, he went over to her and with chalk and a little board began to ask her what the words were that she just sang. And he began to write them down. And she told him, this was a song that my mother taught me and that my grandmother taught her. And so it was a song that I wonder as I wander, and he wrote the words down on the tablet, and long after he left that child, he continued to hear those haunting, beautiful words within his spirit, and he began to think about them, and, and he said, this song so captures the awe of the majesty of what Christ has done for us that he began to try to um, teach it to other people. And this song was released just before World War II, and it awed people with his discovery. And in fact, until his death in 1980, Niles continued to search for where this song started and who the source was of that, of that carol, and he never did. In fact, he concluded late in his life that he believes that that little girl was an angel sitting in the middle of a town sent to deliver this song as a message to a community when it needed the most. And here are the words that he heard that day. I wonder... As I wander out under the sky, how Jesus the Savior did come for to die. For poor, ornery people like you and like I, I wonder as I wander out under the sky. When Mary birthed Jesus, t'was in a cow stall with wise men and farmers and shepherds and all. But high from God's heaven, a star's light did fall, and the promise of the ages it then did recall. If Jesus had wanted for any wee thing, a star in the sky or a bird on the wing, or all of God's angels in heaven for to sing, he surely could have had it, because he was the king. I don't know about you, but I like getting up before the sun comes up, and on those few days in Syracuse when you can see something besides clouds, 
I like looking up in the sky and, and, and seeing the display of God's creation magnificently, magnificently thrown before us. And as we hear this morning in the passage of Scripture, we recognize that the creation came from the Word of God, the creative power of His Word. And I look at that, and I don't know about you, but as I look at things like that, I often wonder, I'm wondering, how did God do all of this? How did He do it? How did the king of the universe end up being born as a human baby in an unsanitary barn? Now, the unsanitary part came to mean something to me because many of you know that a couple of weeks ago, my fourth grandchild was born, our, our second grandson was born, and his mother and father instantly told me that I could not hold him until I had sanitized my hands. <clears throat> and then I was told where on his head I could kiss him and where I could not because apparently you can't kiss babies on the hands or the cheeks because they touch them all the time. And I begin to think, what about Jesus? He seemed to be okay, you know, and, and, and there was no sanitizer in that bathroom or in the stall or wherever he was. I just find that interesting today. I was just a little extra. As we get to verse 14, we see the main point of the paragraph, and it says, The Word, the Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. And back in verse 1, to capture the context of this chapter, in verse 1 it tells us who the Word is so that we know what's happening here. Because in verse 1 it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So we know from the context of the Scripture that the Word that is being spoken of in verse 14 is Jesus. So we know that right up front. In fact, it uses the term in, in, in some of the translations, that it uses the term son, because the term is used, I know, in, in the King James Version and in others as well. He was a glorious gift, the only son from the Father. So the Word is the Son of God. Now, Muslims stumble over this word son. And here's why, and there are others that do as well. Some of them think that this terminology means that somehow the God of the universe had a, a sexual encounter with Mary and as a result of that produced a son. Uh, but we recognize that the Bible says in John 1, 1 that in the beginning was the Word. In other words, Jesus existed before his human body existed. The essence and the nature of God existed. The Word existed before this. And so we don't stumble over it as much as others do. But it, it says also in, in verse 3 of, of, uh, of it, it says, Through him all things were made. Through Jesus, all things were made, and without him, nothing has been made that is made. So we need to understand as we approach this Christmas season and look at this passage of Scripture that when Jesus came as a baby in human flesh, it wasn't that he was being introduced to humanity. He had already known us, and he came as for a specific purpose. He'd already existed, but this was part of the plan. So here's what we know about the Son of God based on the Word up to this point. We know that he is God. We know that the Father is also God. We know that the Son is not the Father, but He's with the Father. And we know that He is uncreated, or He is eternal, has always been. And there is so much in this doctrine of the Trinity. I, I, 
recognized last week when, when Jason was, was trying to talk about the Trinity and I was sitting there smiling because this is the one question that we all struggle with. How is it that we don't serve a polytheistic God, the, uh, three gods, but it's really one God with three distinct personalities, three distinct intrinsic qualities that work together and it's very hard to describe but it exists just the way God intended it to, his personality. One divine nature separate centers of consciousness. For those of you that are following along in your bulletin, you can begin to jot down, number one, the first point, the great condescension. To condescend means to lower oneself to a level that's not normally occupied. Physically, mentally, or socially, it means to descend voluntarily to a level of another person. And with human beings, this is not always done with kindness because we like to remind people who we are. In fact, I get a kick out of it whenever we have celebrities that get pulled over by the police, and in the police reports, they always say something like, do you know who I am? You can obviously tell that, am I supposed to? Is it supposed to mean something here? You know, and, and I believe that we are born with this nature of, do you know who I am? I was pulling into a parking lot with a friend of mine who pastors a church in, in a local town here, and as we were pulling in his parking lot, there were several places, and, and there was a very well-dressed, handsome man that was there showing people where to park, and he looked at me, he goes, that is one of the most world-renowned brain surgeons who is working as a parking lot attendant here, and he says, what, what made me laugh so much is he says, when they came and they were bringing all the parking lot attendants together for training, the leader of the group had no idea who it was, and he was saying, now here's how you hold the flashlight with his hand, and this is the way that we direct traffic in, and he said, and I sat there and laughed thinking, he's talking to one of the smartest people in the world, but the man said nothing, because he just liked to serve. He, he understood what it meant to lower oneself to do something less than what you could and you do it with great grace. The word that John personified is the very expression and manifestation of God. The creative power of God is in his word. In fact, when you, you look in Genesis and it said, and God spoke into existence and everything was, that word that he spoke is the very nature of the Son of God. And to know that the power of God, the power of his word can dwell in each of us makes me just in awe and wonder. The awesomeness of the power of God and the power of his word and the power of his word, the limitless power of God condescended to be compressed into the body of a little human baby, into human flesh. He willingly limited himself in scope and in power and in being. And I find it interesting because John purposely uses a word here that just drove the intellectual Greek people crazy because they would never have used this, but John intentionally used the word flesh. He was born in human flesh because the Greeks recoiled from that word flesh, especially in regard to deity. They just couldn't understand how, because flesh to them, the terminology of flesh and the, the weakness of our flesh meant flesh is corruptible, it is temporary, it's doomed to be destroyed, it's meant to be cast aside, and so the idea that God, no God would degrade himself in such a way as to be stuffed into the packaging of flesh, it made no sense to them. And yet he entered human flesh because he wanted us to know that there's not a single thing that any of us go through as a whole person that he hasn't experienced. And so in becoming flesh, 
God accepted the limitations of humanity. He became vulnerable to natural human weaknesses that accompany our flesh. He knew what it was like to be hungry. He knew what it was like to be thirsty or to be physically just exhausted after a work day. He knew what it was like to experience pain. Not only did he know the physical limitations, he also knew the emotional harm and hurts that come along with that. Because he experienced the emotional traumas that come with disappointment and sorrow and hurt and loneliness and rejection. And because Jesus had no sin, he did all of this without even the taint of sin. And in verse 13, or in verse 14, we understand that in one of the most important events of history, the Word became flesh, God became flesh, but he did this without ceasing to be fully God. He limited himself, squeezed into human flesh, but he maintained the complete nature of the deity of the Almighty God. Which leads us, actually I was watching a a commercial for Transformers. Any of you seen the Transformer movies or at least, I I looked at that and I'm going, boy, he is the living example of the best Transformer ever. (laughs) That leads us to the second point, which is the amazing discovery. The reason we say the divine word did not cease to be divine when he became human is because we understand from Scripture it said he made his dwelling among us or he dwelt among us. Now this word dwelling or dwelt really is an Old Testament word that comes from the tabernacle that was uh, accompanying the people while they were in the wilderness and, and God was with them. He made his dwelling among them but it didn't diminish his holiness to be with them. And he said he made his dwelling among us. The verb dwelt is the subject, and the word is the noun, and the word of God is the natural way to say that God in his fullness squeezed himself in human flesh, came down to earth to dwell among us, looked like us, felt like us, understood all that we went through, but within him was the full nature of God. He never lost his divinity, and that will be important as we will find out in just a few minutes. That's why the angel in Matthew chapter 1, verse 20 said, The virgin shall be with child and will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. God with us. So the word, the son, didn't cease to be God when he became man. The second reason that we believe this is, is the next clause in that verse when it says, We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father full of grace and truth. When John speaks of the glory of of God, the manifestation of God's glory, it says, we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only. In other words, there's something about this man, this God-man, Jesus, that as we observe him, there are aspects of his nature that emanate from him that are different than any other human being on the face of the earth. He astounds us with his words. He astounds us with his knowledge. He astounds us with his love, with his grace and his power and his mercy. He he just is an amazing person to be around. One of the things that I love about Jesus, and I'm trying to figure this out, I'm I'm constantly worrying, is that Jesus got invited to all the sinners' parties. Did you notice that? The, The personification of righteousness. And he went. He went to them because there was something about his glory that drew him to them. And it was in relationship with them then that he had the chance to influence them for eternal things. Oh, that God would help us as a church 
have the glory of the Lord working through us in such a way that people want to be around us rather than be repelled by us. In fact, the interesting thing about this word, they, they saw his glory, it, it means to gaze intently upon, and it would be the same word as to study, for those of you who are scientists, that would study something under a microscope in a laboratory. So intently you're looking to find the details of everything there. It's also a word that we would get our English word theater from. In other words, the glory of the God literally mesmerized people. They just looked at him and going, I, I can't describe what I am seeing. And so when Jesus stepped out, when he walked on the earth, people could see him. They gazed at him. They interacted with him. And it's through his presence, the deity of God began to shine through. And they began to see the importance of God in their lives. And just so there was no mistake, John recorded seven miracles that demonstrated the glory of the Lord. And in John chapter 2, verse 11, he says, he thus revealed his glory and his disciples put their faith in him. The glory of the Lord was something that was just emanating from him. So we know that Jesus was not invisible, nor was he obscure. In fact, when you look at Jesus, he said, you see the face of God. When you hear him speak, you're hearing the voice of God. When you interact with him and you get to know him, you are interacting with God. In Jesus, we see God. In his fullness, the word became flesh, and he did so without ceasing to be God. He manifests God's glory. So what does that mean for us? What does that mean for us today here in this setting? And why do I ask that question? Because I always believe that good theology forces us to take the word of God and then make what application do you want us to make from this, oh God? How would you want us to live in light of knowing this knowledge? And so here we apply the truth of this passage to our lives because if we understand it and live it, it will cultivate within us a relational culture. Here's what I mean. For those of you who attend here, you know that our, our, our slogan, our motto is that, that, that we are a community of hope welcoming people home. Our vision statement is that locally to globally, we are pursuing every heart with the love of Jesus. Our mission statement is to be God's people, living in God's power, fulfilling God's purpose. And you recall that over the past several months, I've, I've preached messages that were basically pleading with God that he would use us as a body of believers and that he would begin to work within us in such a way that would grow the relational culture of our church so that we could have greater influence in our community. Because nobody wants to be told something unless there is a relationship behind it that draws them. And so in this relational culture that God is trying to develop out of us, it, he, he explains what it means to us in Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. When he says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourself. Another version of that uses terms like rivalry. In other words, don't be rivals with each other. We don't need to compare ourselves to each other. We don't need to look at the lives of everybody else and say, I wish that were mine or, or I'm going to fight with them for this or that. He says, don't do that and don't be conceited, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. We see this at the very outset of the story of John 1 when Jesus took on flesh to dwell among us. And so as a church, 
As we apply this, we begin to understand that we have to go outside of ourselves and serve others and take thoughts for what interests others. And the basis of that servant relational mindset so that the church can be who God wants her to be is found in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5-7 through seven, when it says this, Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. Whew, that's a biggie. We could spend a lot of time on how closely aligned is my attitude to that of Jesus, and frankly, I would fail a lot. And yet that's what he says is the relational comparison that he brings to us from this. He says, who being in the very nature of God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking on the very nature of a servant, of a servant being made in human likeness, clothed in flesh, the degrading aspect of flesh. So to us, what does it mean for us? That our foundation and relationship with Christ should be made up of a humble, servant-like love of people that constantly renews within us a relational culture because that's what Bethlehem was. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us and ultimately died for us. And the reason I point this out is because the theology, if, if theology counts for anything, and obviously I believe it does, it's that we need to live out this Philippians kind of theology which is the exact kind of theology that John is talking about. That we approach this Christmas season with the understanding that I trust for many of you and for those of you that have not yet yielded your life to Christ or, or acknowledged who he is and what he's done for you, today you're going to get that opportunity. But following that decision that our lives are radically changed by the, by the work of the Holy Spirit within us that leads us to believe that God placed us in this world so that we can be relationally relationally intertwined with others so that we can influence them to his greatness and when we understand that things begin to make sense the word became flesh the word became flesh you can hear some of the heartbeat behind that as we have our eyes on the differences of what we were before we interacted with Christ and what we are now after coming to know him and then at the end of verse 14, there's this powerful, and this would be the third point, this powerful connection of the mingling of grace and truth. What does that mean for us? That the word became flesh, yes, we've seen his glory, the glory of the one and only, but it says that he is full of grace and truth. It means that in Jesus Christ, we can see the glory of God. And it means that the glory of God revealed in Jesus, because of his grace, does not consume us in our sin. Can you imagine, how many of you ever said, oh, I just want to be in your presence, Lord. I just want to see you. I just want to be with you. Have you ever, ever said that? You know what? Before I came to know him as Savior, I don't know that I would want to see him. The reason being is that the righteousness, the personification of righteousness in him would absolutely have burned me to shreds because of the sinfulness that I approached him with. And so we have this God stuffed into human flesh, displaying all of the glory of the Father, and then he comes to us and says, and the only way for you to ever know me is for me to be gracious to you. I come full of grace. This gracious disposition is, is very, very great. That's why he uses the word full of grace. The word full modifies his glory. The glory of the Son of God is full of graciousness toward us sinners. And he does so without compromising the truth of who he is, without compromising his righteousness. So the word, the son who is God, became flesh to reveal a divine glory that is full of grace and truth. He became flesh to be gracious to us. He retained his deity so that he 
could be truthful with us. And finally, this verse ends with a powerful word of invitation. And, and it tells us that Jesus came to earth full of grace and truth. And Eugene Peterson puts it this way. He came in such a way that he's generous inside and out. And he's true to himself and to us from start to finish. When he stepped out of heaven and was stuffed into flesh... Jesus offered grace and truth, and, and the final two great pair of words is, is John's prologue as he's introducing Jesus to us. He says, grace is an irresistible compulsion to give men more than they deserve. Oh, hallelujah that God did not give me what I deserve. Oh, hallelujah for that. And then truth, on the other hand, has its roots in the divine determination to be consistent, predictable, and thereby trustworthy in dealing with mankind. You see, grace without truth is sentimentality, while truth without grace will appear, will appear to be inflexible and rigid, and God came with them both so that we can enjoy him. So the one present that we need most as we approach this new Christmas season through the eyes of a child with wonder is this. We need the present of grace, and we need it wrapped in his truth. And that he presents to us as God himself come, as Jesus come to us to save us. In the Monday, December 15th, 2008 version of the Greenville, South Carolina newspaper, Ed Leap wrote a column that day. Ed is a physician, and the article is entitled, Christmas Reminds Us of Christ's Saving Grace. And I want to read you an excerpt of that letter that was written that day from a doctor's perspective. He said, over and over again, I have asked suicidal and depressed patients what is pushing them to the brink. Their answer is so consistent that it must give deeper meaning than what we realize. Again and again, I hear, I'm no good, they tell me. Sometimes they're hearing voices, so I ask what the voices say, and they said, the voice always says that I am worthless and that I should die. The problem is, as long as humans have existed, we have sensed that we are not something we ought to be. And as long as we've been wounded by family and friends or strangers, we've doubted our worth. The cure for all the fractured suffering of the human heart, all the terror that we visit upon one another, all the guilt we bear with bent spines our whole lives, all the horrible condemning voices is the fact of grace. Grace, I propose, is the greatest concept in human history. This season, we celebrate the birth of the author of grace. He came to earth worthless and was born into oppression and domination. He came to a place and people broken, and in the end was broken himself. The author of grace was told, many, was told by many that he was no good. Jesus was told that he was a liar, that he was useless, that he was deluded, that he was mad. Finally, he received the ultimate rejection and insult by being crucified and he paid for it with his life but Jesus was broken for the broken and he was hated for the hated he was despised and rejected so that the despised and rejected would have a hero and a comforter and yet in all of it he announced the cure to all of you is grace and he told us what we already knew that we were broken and needed repair he told us the repair would be free for the taking that we were all loved in spite of the voices in our heads, the words of our enemies, the cruelty from our families and our friends. And in bringing us grace, he changed the world. He said that we could never do enough to truly be good, but we could share his goodness 
if we would merely accept the grace, the gift that he offered. And in that fell swoop, he negated all other contingency therapy for misery of humanity. No wealth or position could cure our loneliness. No rule or law could ever overcome our weakness. No plan or good deed could earn our healing. Only the gift he brought, only himself coming full of grace and truth changes the heart and the mind of humanity to this day. At Christmas, Jesus shouts. And I want you to hear this very clearly because he's shouting to every one of you the same thing. You are worth everything to me. Everything to me. Don't belittle yourself. Don't doubt yourself. Don't compare yourself. I love you. And I came to dwell among you to show you. Because when you get that, you begin to understand that his journey, being stuffed into flesh, was the first step that leads us to a wonderful Easter message. When in truth, he delivers us from the sin that have held us captive. And I'm going to ask that you would close your eyes for just a moment. If our ushers would prepare themselves to get ready to, to hand out the communion elements. I want to take an opportunity before we do that. That you may be here today. And I just declared to you the truth of a Savior that maybe you didn't know. Or maybe you have rejected. Or maybe you have just held back from yielding yourself to him. Because you have thought you could do this on your own. But you see, you have a knot in your throat right now, and there's something going on in your chest. It's called the convincing power of the Holy Spirit. He's knocking on the door of your heart, and he's asking you today, would you please let me in so that I can bring to you this gift of grace and truth change your life? And if you're here today and say, today, Pastor, is the day that I am going to receive Jesus as my Savior, I'm not going to embarrass you, but what I'm going to ask you to do is just raise your hand. I'm going to acknowledge you, and then you can put it right back down. I will not embarrass you, but this is the most important decision you'll make for eternity. As I begin on my right and your left, is there anyone? Yes, ma'am, I agree with you. Is there anyone else? Yes, sir, I agree with you. Yes, ma'am, I agree with you. Looking to the the right center, the left center, is there anybody else? Today's your day. God's knocking on the door of your heart. Moving over, yes, ma'am, I agree with you. Is there anyone else in the right center? Is God speaking to your heart right now? Is this your moment? Moving over to the far right, into the overflow. Yes, sir, I agree with you. Yes, ma'am, I agree with you. Anybody else in the overflow? Yes, sir, I agree with you. This is why he came. Heavenly Father, I ask right now that those that have responded to the convincing power of the Holy Spirit that brings them to understand that you're offering a gift today that they need. I ask that you would understand their heart and hear them as they responded and that you would grant to them the gift of grace that washes away all of the stain of sin. And that you would give them in their heart today the knowledge that they now know the gift of truth in you as well. Something they couldn't pay for or do on their own, they found in you. Would you write their name in the Lamb's Book of Life right now and join with us as heaven celebrates as new people are finding Christ at this season. And in this we pray, in Jesus' name, amen. The communion elements are about to be distributed, and for those of you that may be guests, we have open communion in our church, meaning that if you have a relationship with Jesus, you are welcome to participate. 
I'm going to ask that you would take the elements and that you would hold them until everybody has been served and then I will lead us together in the communion. While the rest of the emblems are being displayed, I want to tell you a story that was told by Rick Edsel of a couple that was within his church. A young lady when she was 15 and a young man when they were 17 met. All through high school they had dated, so after high school and it was not a surprise to anyone that they married. Four years later, this young lady is standing in her kitchen with a pile of dirty dishes in the sink. Two children sitting at her feet, crying, demanding her attention. Pile of dirty diapers in the corner. Tears streaming down her face. Looking back, she was never quite sure why she made the decision, but she did. She took off her apron, stepped over her children, walked out the door and closed it behind her. She got a call that night from her husband. He said, where are you? I came home and the kids were in the house by themselves. Where are you? Are you okay? Is everything all right? He was fighting anger and controlling his voice as he was speaking to her and she only said one thing. She goes, how are the children? She ignored everything else he said and he says, well, if you mean have they been fed, yes. You mean if they've been put to bed, yes, I put them to bed, but I'm wondering where are you? How are you? What's going on? Why did you just leave? She hung up the phone. Once a week, for the next several months, she would call. And as she called her husband, knowing that something was seriously wrong, began in those phone calls, please tell me where you're at. Is everything okay? What's wrong? What happened? I don't understand any of this. And she would simply ask one question, how are the children? Well, your parents and my parents are here living with us right now, and they're taking care of them. Finally, the young husband could stand it no longer, so he took their meager savings and he hired a private investigator and asked him to find his wife, and it didn't take long, and the detective came back and he said, your wife is barely surviving. She's living in a third-rate hotel in Des Moines, Iowa. The young man borrowed money from his parents, bought an airline ticket, and flew to Des Moines. After taking a cab from the airport to the hotel, he walked up to the third flight of steps and standing outside that door began to prepare himself to knock on the door and suddenly he started shaking. Tears were beginning to come down his face because he didn't know what was going to happen as he knocked on that door. He had doubt in his eyes, trembled, but he knocked on the door and his wife answered him stood there stunned that he was standing there and he had had a prepared speech and he couldn't remember any of it. All he could do was grab her and he takes her and he holds her in his arms and she begins to weep in his arms. They went home together that night. One evening, weeks later, the children were in bed and he and his wife were sitting in the living room before the fire. He finally got the courage to ask the question that he'd been wondering about for so long and he simply looked at him and he said, why? Why wouldn't you come home? When I was calling you, why wouldn't you come home? I told you I loved you, that I would do anything to make this right. Why wouldn't you come home? And with profound simplicity, she said, but because before those were only words, but you came. Today you came. And it changed everything. Today, as we hold these communion elements, understanding as we begin to take a look at John 1, 14, 
The scripture describes to us that God is not just out there in heaven yelling at us. He loves us. He's not just up there as a big coach in the sky yelling at you going, you can do better. You can do it. Pick yourself up. Don't let defeat get you down. He didn't do that. He came. Communion indicates to us that he came. He came and he knocks on the door. And we're the ones that stumble blubbering into his arms because we recognize we can't do anything but respond to his love and his grace and his mercy. So I'm going to ask that you would lift the bread before the Lord, which is the symbol of his broken body. Understanding that this is symbolic of him coming. The humanity of God is wrapped up in this element. His flesh, the things that the Greeks thought were so dirty and disgusting that Jesus said, I'm taking it on for you so that none of you here can ever tell me I don't know what your life is like. Because I was stuffed into flesh. And it was my body broken for you. Father, as we lift this before you, I ask that you would bless it. And that you would bless our memory of you. In whatever limited capacity that we have to, to try to begin to grasp the pain that you went through. So that you could look us in the eyes and say, I know everything you're going through. And I am victorious through you. We hold this wafer. The symbol of your broken body. The symbol of your humanity. And we give you thanks. And we partake of it in remembrance of you. Let's eat it together. Following that moment, a little later on in the Last Supper, he took the cup. And as we hold this juice today, which represents to us the blood of Jesus Christ, I want you to understand how John 1.14 comes together in this for us. You see, the flesh was him in humanity. The blood is him in his divinity. Because the blood did something for me that I can't do for myself. When I stand before God, Satan is going to pull out his briefcase and have a list of everything that I've ever done wrong. And Jesus, as a righteous judge, is going to stand there and say, it's been paid in full because of the blood. My deity covers all of that. You have nothing to say against my people because of the divinity wrapped up in the blood of Christ. Oh, doesn't that make Christmas real to us today? So, Father, we lift before you the cup of that which we could never earn. And I ask that you bless this cup and our memory of it, for it represents to us what we could not do for ourselves. The righteous Lamb of God slain for the sins of the world. And today we are the beneficiaries of it. So blessed I pray as we partake in Jesus' name. Let us partake together. Hallelujah. 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 I'm going to ask that you would stand with me this morning. And I'm going to invite our altar workers if they would please make their way to the front. We believe in prayer at our church. We believe that God answers prayer. And I recognize as I'm getting ready to dismiss this service that there are some of you that need just to join in faith with somebody today that pray for you. Maybe it's decisions you have to make or a physical ailment within your body. Or maybe you raised your hand today and said, I need somebody to kind of explain to me what the next steps of this journey are. Because 
It's a journey that we make the decision to follow Christ singularly, individually, but then he brings us into a body of Christ where we make this journey of life together. If there's a need within your life today or within your family or something going on, I want to encourage you before you leave, would you please come and let one of our altar workers just pray with you and join with you in prayer as we apply all that this communion service means to us today. So Father, as we approach you this morning, I ask that your word would find a place in our soul that we can't get rid of it, but it just sits there and it grows and the, and the grandeur of your nature begins to grow in it and that, Father, from it we would become more relational in the things that we are within our families, within our friends, our co-workers, and our community because you came and it changed everything. So, Lord, as we go, may we change the lives of others with your goodness and your grace by the mercy that we display to them because you were graceful to us and also full of truth. And we ask this in Jesus' name and everyone said, amen.